Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia perfecta ex machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media, and focusing on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors about how and why they use multimodal approaches, and we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. On today's episode, episode 5, I interview Christina Hildebrandt about her approach to teaching multimodal composition in both literature classes and rhetoric classes. In particular, we focus on multimodal projects that don't necessarily include the digital, or for that matter, things that plug in. All right, so I'm in the studio with, as I just introduced, I'm here with Christina Hildebrandt. Um, Christina, introduce yourself to our massive audience. Hi, I am Christina Hildebrandt. I am currently teaching English 1900, uh, a medical humanities-themed English 1900 course. What other courses have you taught? I Thank you for asking. I have also taught uh, at the 2000 level. Um, I've taught a couple of different literature courses, but the ones that I've specifically used new media in um, are... Nature, Ecology, and Literature. This was a specially themed one that was more medical humanities, ecology of the body, and also conflict, social justice, and literature. And so you mentioned you taught multimodal projects in both of those. I think given that our um, our listening audience, which are instructors um, both at the 1900 level and at the 2000 level, um, I guess if you could sort of talk us through what you see as the differences between multimodal approaches at both those courses, right, at the 1900 level, which is composition-based, and the 2000, which is literature-based. Um, and then also, I guess, maybe as a follow-up that I might re-ask later, but also how the multimedia components shift in response to the themes, given that we now have those themes at the 1900 level, right? How do you see multimedia projects um, resonating with specific themes? So what kinds of multimodal projects do you see fitting nicely with something, some themes as opposed to others. Okay. So um, my approach to using multimodal projects, I generally let them self-select. So I don't tell them that you need to do a video or a podcast. I have done that in, in previous courses that I've designed, but um, especially, well, at especially at the 2000 level, but also at the 1900 level, I usually let them self-select uh, what medium they're going to be working in, just stipulating that the project does need to function in more than one mode. Uh, so I have cannibalized one of your <laughs> your assignment sheets nice. where they have, yes, where they come up with a design plan and they talk specifically about how they are going to be using this other medium, uh, how they see it functioning. Um, it depends how the assignment is worded, depends on whether it's a 1900 course or if it's a 2000 level course. Um, for the 1900 level course, they're usually working with a particular, wanting to make a particular argument or working within a, a particular argument. And um, so how, how does using this multimedia reach their audience in a different way? Um, what, how does it function uh, within their larger argument that they've crafted over the semester? Yeah. Uh, then for the 2000 level courses, generally, I ask them to make some sort of argument about a text or texts within the course related to the theme. And um, how do how does the, the new media inflect that argument or how how are they using their medium to 
further their argument in a way that they couldn't in a traditional essay. So sort of implicitly, they're kind of arguing for why they should be doing it in this media in right. the first place in the design plan. Um, and then they have a postmortem to reflect on the choices and how how it all shook out. Right. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if you could describe a couple of examples or, or sample student projects that you, you thought, not just the ones that were just really awesome, although I assume you'll talk about those, but the ones that you thought succeeded precisely because they they fully employed that medium, right? They explored it to its fullest potential. They sort of inhabited it for the purposes of this particular assignment. Okay, so uh, with I'm going to talk specifically about using it in my 2000 level courses. So when I uh, use, I mean, I will use new media within the course. Like I'll have them look at trailers in my literature course, um, trailers for books that we're watching or <laughs> books that we're reading any sort of adaptations, we'll talk about those. So they kind of have been experiencing different mediums throughout the course of the semester. So it's not like some brand new thing that I'm just introducing at the end. But I'll give them the option of writing a traditional essay that includes some sort of outside research, or they can do the multimodal project. And um, with the multimodal project, I mean, it's gone down a, a couple of different ways, depending on which class. So my most recent course was on uh, was the conflict social justice course, and for that class, uh, some of the submissions I got. One of the most interesting was not. I mean, we expect kind of. I think sometimes with multimodal projects, them to be something on the internet or you know, right. like some sort of digital medium, because we tend to have this idea that that's what they're most comfortable. But the mode yeah. in which they're most comfortable functioning. They'll make a YouTube video like kids these yeah. days do. Yeah, exactly. Um, or a podcast because they like talking to the internet <laughs> like we do right now. Yes. Um, meta moment. Yes. Uh, and, and only the internet's listening. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there's no other audience. Yeah. Anyway, um, so one of the most interesting projects I received was from a student who did a board game. So, again, I had asked them to kind of make an argument about for this class, two texts using their whichever medium that they decided on to explore one of the themes of conflicts and social justice or one of the themes that had arisen throughout the, the course. And so the student made a board game called The Real Game of Life, where she had, she did a board game, or like she did a game board, and then she had to come up with the entire game design. So we talked about, um, through the kind of feedback um, and checking in that we do kind of at the end of the semester, uh, we had talked about her maybe modeling it on an existing game. So she's not trying to like reinvent, you know, like invent the wheel. She's right. just reinventing the wheel. Um, thinking about like models she could use, things like that. But anyway, what she ended up creating was this board game that played with the idea of privilege. So she had character cards and the character cards would list ability um, ethnicity, age, education, things like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you'd have an aspiration. Like, what what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to be? And she drew these from, she had done research on like the most popular professions that okay. people aspire to be when they're younger. Oh, and nice. so it was like things like pilot and teacher and astronaut and mm -hmm. <laughs> all of the things that you have to go through. And then you had like a checklist that you had to go through. And you would roll and land on a check mark, and when you landed on the check mark, uh, you could check that thing off your list. Except for that, these there were these things called but 
beauty cards, which <laughs> was hilarious. Yeah. Um, and those butt cards would stipulate based on your ethnicity or your ability or your uh, sexual identity, mm-hmm. how you might be excluded from this check mark. To kind of get right, yeah, to engage but. with how, like how things actually maybe work. Right. They're like you know, sometimes if you're from, if you have a different sexual orientation, you might have to work a little harder to right. do X, Y, or Z. But yeah, so it was an interesting concept. I think um, we played it. I played it with some grad students, so they might remember it. Uh, but yeah, it was a really interesting game. Then I had another student do. I really kind of, I had asked them to engage with two texts and he created a speech that was meant to be kind of at the end of The Handmaid's Tale, they're the historical notes. Okay. And it imagines like this academic conference where they have read The Handmaid's Tale uh, and are now commenting on it and, and the state of things. And uh, he created his own version of an academic talk that somebody would have given at this conference mm-hmm. at the... Uh, Gladian Society conference, and his speech was talking about the unbabies. And then what happened to the unbabies? Well, we proposed, like, you know, it's time of famine. What were we doing with the unbabies? And he used it, he connected it to Jonathan Swift's modest proposal to propose that they were a source of food in Gilead which was disturbing and hilarious at the same time. Sure. And he presented it to the class and he actually had taken, he, he found evidence. He tried to craft it as an academic speech. As, as, would, as one would want to do. Yes. And he, he took pictures of scriptures that he had highlighted that he said were, was from a Bible, from a high ranking commander of Bible verses that supported the use of the unbabies as food. Wow. Yeah. He was committed. It was, it was very well done. Yeah. But um, basically, in both of those projects were, I would say, exceptional just because doing multimodal projects, it really allowed them to dig into the text in ways that they necess- wouldn't necessarily have done otherwise. So the game, the real game of life, she was drawing on examples from texts that we had worked with to kind of support where she's getting all of these job cards or right. um, some of the experiences we read Between the World and Me with Ta-Nehisi Coates, just some of the experiences there, um, things from the course. Yeah. I'm assuming, too, once you pick a project like that, she also just has to flesh out the details. Yeah. So it compels a certain, right, if I want to recreate all the elements of the game of life, I have to do that. And to do that means I have to go back over the details of the text to mine it for elements of the game. Yeah. And when you're talking about something about privilege, you you want to make sure that you're doing it in a way that um, isn't further demeaning to, to so these character cards that she's created. Right. Yeah. Um, I, you have the, the potential to fall back on stereotypes right. when you're doing this. So she was was using the course text as a guide. Yeah. To make these character cards. Yeah, I could. You're, yeah, now that you mentioned that, I could see that the production of the game itself could be walking a a fine rhetorical line between right patronizing, or one could imagine a whole bunch of responses to the to the the logic of the game itself. Right, trying to make a particular point 
But to do that, recreate some of the things it's being critical of. Yeah, and one of the things that was interesting when we actually did the gameplay is that, I mean, obviously you're thinking in, in the game of life, the person who's probably going to be most privileged is the, the person who's straight white male. Mm-hmm. But because of the way that things shook out as far as like the role of the die and the butt cards, that yeah. didn't necessarily end up being the case right. in our gameplay. So it was interesting in that manner, too, that privilege doesn't always work the way that you think it is. So it does yeah. kind of make the players question privilege. So I thought it was it was very well done from that yeah. viewpoint. But there was, so with my previous course, I think we were talking earlier, uh, I had a student who, in my Nature Ecology and Literature, the Ecology of the Body course, uh, I had a student, we had read Lucy Grayley's Autobiography of a Face, which if you're unfamiliar with, she has osteosarcoma, she has a tumor in her jaw and has to have a part of her jaw removed when she's very young. And then she goes through many, several painful surgeries afterwards. Um, But Autobiography of Face kind of really talks about identity. Um, It deals a lot with her isolation, uh, questions, kind of standards of beauty, things like that. And um, I had a student who made a Twitter account uh, as Lucy Grayley. We kind of talked about the ethical ramifications. It's sort of, it's not like it's a fictional character. You're making a Twitter account for a person who actually lived and, and you know, passed away uh, because of all of these issues. So, you know, there needs to be some sort of sensitivity to that. Yeah. But her Twitter was successful, but also unsettling just because um so successful in the sense that the argument that she was trying to make and i think that she did make is that um part of lucy's grayley's isolation maybe came from the fact that she she didn't have ways to connect with people in the way that somebody who has access to social media today does so like with twitter account she was able to talk to and connect and express herself in different ways but unfortunately, that connecting came from like random strangers right. responding to her Twitter account as if it were legitimate, and it's it's not. Yeah. No, I think that, and that seems to be the the through line of these projects, um, and I think reflects or going back to previous episodes of this podcast, the particularly Dr. Lynch's comments about the Jesuit tradition as far as its sort of public performative aspects that making these things kinds of demonstrations or performances. I think highlights those the those need for those sensitivities because it's performed out loud and in front of people yeah. and it's kind of interactive. Um that might make those moments that might be easier to mask or to at least be backgrounded in another form of composing. But right, as soon as you're actually having living embodied people engaging with the performance makes raises those issues, right? I mean you right. isn't that the student's ability to navigate that strikes me as a large portion of the actual assignment itself, right? The ability to pull that off um, seems linked to the larger goals you might have for that class, right? Beyond just understanding the text, but actually performing the text's argument or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, too, part of the reason that I, I particularly like using them in literature classes is because not we teach our students in the 2000 level literature classes to write arguments right they are supposed to be coming up with thesis statements but if you look at the rubric that we have 
one of those, you know, like the excellent, the A thesis is one that is innovative and they don't necessarily know how to get to that innovative place when they're writing a traditional paper. Like we can work on the thesis statement, we can evolve it throughout um, the the writing process, but sometimes it's just, it's not always easy for them to to kind of grasp what goes beyond just typical critical thinking or what Mm -hmm. goes beyond the uh, discussions we've had within the course already. Uh, How do you get there? And because they have to think through so many different things to come up with these final projects, they always, they are always interesting and innovative and deal with, like, for example, the, the Unbabies uh, Modest Proposal right. speech. It's interesting. It's innovative. And, you know, I, I don't know that I had necessarily ever thought you know, like wondered what they had done with the unbabies. Right, right. Um, it's it's definitely a disturbing element of the Handmaid's Tale. Yes. But when you, one of the things that he was kind of able to discover through his process is he's like, maybe they want to have unbabies. Maybe an unbaby is just as successful because if it's a, if you're monetizing the unbaby, then there's <laughs> It works on multiple levels. It's not just that the commanders have their children. It's that Gilead has a food source, which is creepy and disturbing, but disturbing in in a very Atwood way. Right, exactly. I was just going to say, right, because the students now imagine themselves giving a kind of performance within the world of the text. Yeah. Post-Gilead world. If that's going to work, then they have to sort of really take on the text so that they're their addition to it or their supplement to it feels like it could take place in that world. So, right, the criteria for that speech would be, does it feel Atwoody? Yeah. Because that's the challenge the student gave for himself in this particular instance, right? Sort of embodying the text, performing it, as opposed to some other kind of analytical approach. Yeah, exactly. Yes. One of the better projects that I had, too, I don't mean to say better, they were all very interesting, mm-hmm. and they perform in different... different. I love all of my children equally. Yes, exactly. I love all of my children equally. But um, with my Nature, Ecology, and Literature class, one of the projects that I enjoyed the most, let me just put it that way, I, a student, you have heard about this, Frankensong, uh, mm-hmm. we had read Frankenstein, and a student decided to reinterpret Frankenstein through song, Don McLean's... America, uh, American Pie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He rewrote a rendition of that as as if it was sung by the creature. Uh, which... I have fond memories of this. I'm assuming, by the way, we'll try to play this in the background. Yeah, you can, you can totally. I, I will send you the file. But yeah. what was interesting about that is part of his argument for even doing the song, he had to to kind of come up for a reason that he was having the creature sing a song in the first place. And he was thinking about how how much the creature enjoyed listening to the old man play the guitar and sing when... I don't know if he played the guitar for sure. But he was singing when he was behind the wall looking at the family. It's been a while since I've read it, so I'm forgetting character names. But uh, he he also crafted a letter from... Waldrop? I am totally not remembering things anymore. Anyway, the, you have the epistolary part of the novel at the very beginning, and he crafted an extra letter uh, as if he found 
the recording of the song, or he found like the notation for this song and his response to that. So it was sort of like engaging with with the novel in new and interesting ways on multiple levels because we we often forget about like the epistolary portion of the novel. So that was a major component of his <laughs> project. But also just I would never have thought that, you know, the creature who struggled so much to read and to write and to compose that then he might use song as another that that would be another thing that he would try to perfect himself in with song. Yeah. All right. So we are just about finishing up. But one of the things, too, that I that I liked about what you described and I think also connects these kinds of projects back at the 1900 level is sort of all the, the things you described around it. So the, the way that the student has to make the case for the kinds of things that they've done, those kinds of things, I think, which I think is our, one of at least our, the kind of arguments we make for these multimedia projects is in fact, all of the writing and thinking that has to take place around them. Yes. And that those are things that students also articulate. And so I think the process paper, or the evaluation assignment are oftentimes can be just as interesting when the student actually has to sit down and explain why they did what they did yes. and particularly justifying why they did what they did. Um, and oftentimes they do that with reference to the text itself or the materials itself. So oftentimes those kinds of explanatory moves um, don't actually move them further away from the issue of the text, but oftentimes back into it more deeply. Yeah. And one thing that I didn't, um, not necessarily connecting to what you just said, but one thing that I I like about doing multimodal projects is because it is one of those times where you can potentially position the student to be kind of an expert. So my student who plays guitar and sings, he's now kind of in his comfort zone. Yeah. Um, and it really empowers students in in really interesting ways. Like they feel very empowered. And they really like engaging with the texts yeah. in this way. No, I think if we really, as as um, I think media scholars and things and and related areas have pointed out, right, that these these media aren't simply means of conveyances, but they're actually kinds of habits that we form and things that we embody, right? That if you have yes. a student that's comfortable with a particular mode of composition, um, that can that can oftentimes open up new avenues for composing and invention. Yes. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. All right. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, to share an assignment or tool, or even to pitch an interview, please contact me, Nathaniel Rivers, at nathaniel.rivers at slu.edu. Quincha perfecta ex machina.